for those that were here last week, you will know that I said I'm going to start a bit of a, a sermon series looking at a topic that I still think confronts us as Christians, the topic of grace versus law. I said often in our day-to-day Christian life, we can wrestle with doing certain things or not doing certain things. We can wrestle with are they right or are they wrong? And sometimes the wrestle becomes even greater because we go and ask some of our Christian friends what they think. What would they do? And sometimes they will give us completely different ideas on how we should act or what we should do. I'm not sure about you, but oftentimes in my Christian walk, I've often been left thinking, how can we Christians who read the same Bible, follow the same Jesus, differ so much on some beliefs? A friend of mine was a doctor in Toowoomba in Queensland, and she came to me and she asked me, could I be her mentor? I didn't really find that quite okay to be your mentor being a female and I said no what was she really after and after chatting with her what she was really wanting was for someone that she could come and chat with if she ever had some theological question or something that she ever got stuck on and so hearing that I said oh yeah that's fine so I said yes I remember she used to come to me with certain topics and certain questions and I would say to her well If you go to this person, if you read about this theologian and the Bible in this area, this is their school of thought and their understanding. So they would give you this answer. However, if you come over here and you go to this theologian and you go and look at what they've written about it, um, they come from a different understanding and a different interpretation. So they would give you a different answer. Now, I guess you understand being a doctor, she often struggled with this because she was very much a scientist and a black and white person. And she said to me, she said, oh, imagine if we are there as students sitting in med school and we're taught that if someone comes in with a broken leg, well, it's broken. What do you do with things that are broken? Chuck them out. So what you do is you cut it off. Um, However, it may not be broken that bad. So you could say to them, there's another school of thought that says, look, just, just, just put up with the pain you know, and uh, it it should be okay. Or maybe you could put plaster on it and hopefully it sets in six weeks. Or maybe there's another school of thought that says a broken leg, you can't really walk, what's the point of living? Euthanise the person and that fixes the problem. (laughs) She couldn't grasp the fact, and she wanted to go to Bible college, but I talked her out of it. She said, oh, it would just drive her nuts. So often when it comes to our Bible, there are many different interpretations and understandings. I said it's one thing to wrestle with these things in our day-to-day Christian life. It's one thing for people to have different opinions, but I can't help but think one time the issue or the problem of grace versus law or what is right, what is wrong, really causes damage is within the church. And that's what I said I'm going to look at today and for my next two sermons. How does grace versus law, how does grace and law work in church. This is scary, so let's pray. Father God in heaven, I just thank you for your word and I thank you for the wisdom of Paul in uh, what he wrote to these people at Rome. And I pray, Father, that as we pull this apart, as we look to this, that you will um, encourage us and help us not to be judgmental, but help us to really just wrestle with things and come with a clear understanding. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Grace versus law in the church. Now, you may think, what a stupid topic. I mean, how does grace versus law even affect the church? Well, I think it does. 
because within a church environment, there are so many people that have so many different ideas, what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you some examples of what I have experienced. I have friends that are full-on Pentecostals. They will preach about spiritual gifts and they will say to them how important it is. I remember the church that Michelle and I got married in and were a part of, he was very much not into spiritual gifts. It was in their church constitution that if you spoke in tongues privately or publicly, you could not be a member. I remember taking some of my friends to my church. Needless to say, it wasn't a good move. What about membership? Is membership a biblical concept of what we have around today? I have people like my brother that believes you should never become a member of a church. In the 10 years, in the last 10 years, he's been to six or seven different churches and I often say to him, I believe that you should really be committed to following one church. I also know that there are certain churches that have in their constitution, you can't do anything unless you are a member. Take leadership. I know one church in Adelaide, if you want to become a leader of the church, you have to sign a contract or a declaration to state that while you're a leader of their church, you're not going to drink. I remember when I went to Sherberg, the Aboriginal community, and I went there and uh, I shared the gospel with people and some people would come to Christ. I know some, some of the elders, the church elders and family members would go up to their families and say, this person isn't really a Christian because they were saved under the New International Version of the Bible, which they didn't believe in. They said a person must be saved under the New King James. I remember in Sherberg that they were very much about in an Aboriginal community. I guess you understand that there is a lot of things that happen. It was in their constitution that if a church member was caught fighting, drunk or gambling in the community, they had to stay away from the church for three months. As you know, we had baptism service here a few weeks ago and I said how nervous I was because of doing it backwards. I've never done it backwards. I remember one time in Queensland I baptised someone forwards and a family member came up to that person and said, you need to be rebaptized because you weren't baptized because you didn't go backwards, because their church believed in baptism going backwards. I asked the church, why? What is this deal about going backwards? And they say, when you die, you're not lied down frontwards, you're lied down backwards. <laughs> I remember in my church in Queensland, I was the only one out of my church at Tagulua that believed in divine election and also believed in the fact that you can't lose your salvation. Speaking of my church in Queensland, some of you know and may be aware, I had women preach in my church. Some of my friends would tell me how they would never be able to step foot in my church because they, I had women preaching. The funny thing is I knew my friends and what church they said and I said what I find interesting is I wouldn't probably wouldn't feel comfortable in attending your church because you had women elders. And I said I don't agree that women should be elders. There are so many things. We could add to this, dress. I've seen churches that will treat people differently or say you must wear a certain type of dress. Divorce. I've seen churches that state if you're a divorced person, you can't do anything within the church. So as you can see, churches can bring a lot of law, a lot of rules into things. And sadly, I know at times these have torn churches apart. I've witnessed it and I've been a part of it. Now, I'm sure you understand that this problem isn't a new problem. Pick up your Bibles and you will notice. The Old Testament records many civil wars, family fights among the people of Israel. The New Testament, almost every local church mention, 
has divisions to contend with. The Corinthians were divided over human leaders and some of the members were even suing each other. The Galatian saints were biting and devouring one another, we are told. In the church at Philippi too, women were at odds with each other, so much so that it was splitting the church. The Christians in Ephesus and Colossae had to be reminded of the importance of Christian unity within their church because they were fighting. Some of these problems stem from the background of the believers in these churches. The Jews, for example, were saved out of strict legalistic backgrounds and it would be difficult to forget that. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they never had to worry about rules and regulations. So you understand when they come together, it caused trouble. It caused this grace and law debate. You'll find it in Acts. I can't help but think if each Christian had kept his convictions to himself, maybe the problems would have been a lot less. But instead of that, they began to criticise. They began to judge one another and they began to fight against one another. And before you knew it, one group thinks it's right and more spiritual than the other. Unfortunately, we still have these similar problems today in our churches. Many what I call grey areas in the life of the Christian church. What am I talking about? Those areas of our walk with God that are not clearly defined as right or wrong to every believer in our scripture. If you were to look up church statements of faith, you will see that some of them characterise it differently. Some will say, this is what we believe. These are the essential beliefs. These are the non-essential beliefs. These are the primary beliefs. These are our secondary beliefs. I know that at eldership, we've had meetings talking about what does our church believe? Where do we stand on certain issues? And we've used the terminology of closed hand issues and open hand issues. Some activities we know are wrong because the Bible condemns them. Other activities we know are right because the Bible clearly commands them. But when it comes to the areas that are not clearly defined in scriptures, sadly, we find ourselves in trouble. Now, I know some people believe when it comes to certain topics, even some that I've mentioned before, there's no grey area. They believe they know the answer wholeheartedly. But I can't help but think when it comes to things like spiritual gifts, women roles in church, membership, baptisms, um, divorce or whatever, you can have one great theologian who says this, there's no grey area, here's the truth. Yet as I used to say to my doctor friend, you can also have another great theologian with the same academic intelligence and years of study and they have a completely different understanding and they will tell you this is the truth. For example... Take two of the most famous Christians of the Victorian era in England, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Both of these men were great, mighty preachers. They had great churches and they preached the gospel. Early in their ministries, they fellowshiped together and even exchanged pulpits. One day, sadly, they had a disagreement. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he attended a theatre on a Sunday. Not taking this lightly, Parker brought out the fact that he didn't have a right to judge him because Spurgeon smoked cigars like a train. <laughs> Reports of their disagreement even made their newspapers. Sadly, their relationship was never the same again. Who was right? Who was wrong? When it comes to these questionable matters in the Christian life of the church, we need some other kind of help than going to people. Well, for me, whenever I chat with people about these type of things, I find the passage from Romans 14 that Tanya read out before is one of the most helpful 
tools I've found in our scripture in regards to grace versus law in the church. I believe here Paul explains how believers are to be when faced with non-essential, open-hand, secondary, or as he called it, disputable matters, and they disagree on them. And his answer may surprise us. The first thing he says is this. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but the other man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. I think my first point today is this. Receive one another. You'll notice that this section begins with Paul's advice. Accept those who are weak in the faith. This word accept, it is much more than just say take on. This word in the Greek is a powerful relational term. This word accept or receive means this. It means to eagerly welcome with open heart and arms ready to share all of life together. The key word in this is the word eager. Eager is so much different than being ready. As you know, I'm a bike rider and I used to play tennis and everything like that. I remember my kids say, Dad, when it comes to tennis nights or when it comes time to riding with Ross or something like that, you can't get out the door quick enough. That's the eager that it is here. You can't get there quick enough. You are eager to come and welcome with open heart, arms and ready to share all of life. This is the kind of love and acceptance that Paul is talking about here, that they are to have with one another. This is the kind of acceptance and openness to share all together. How can we do that? How can they do that? Well, the great news is Paul tells them at the end of the section. Why? Because that's the way God accepts you. He says, accept one another as it's the same way God accepts you. Eagerly accept one another as eagerly as God accepts you. God eagerly welcomes you with open hearts and open arms. He is eagerly ready to share all of life with you. He's done it for you. Now that's the way you do it to others. What is it that destroys this acceptance? Things like we talked about before. Those non-essential, second-hand or open-handed issues. As I said, Paul calls them disputable matters. A matter is disputable when it involves choices which God has not spoken about clearly in his word. Adultery and theft, for instance, they're not disputable. <laughs> but many of the convictions which Christian hold dearly, the do's and don'ts of church, fall into this category. They are disputable, yet some passionately believe it with all their heart that God's will as spelled out in scripture in black and white. The believers in Rome were divided over things like special diets and special days. Some of the members thought it was a sin to eat meat, so they only ate vegetables. Other members thought it was a sin not to observe the holy days. In this passage, Paul was addressing those who were strong in the faith. That is, those who understood their freedom in Christ and were not enslaved to diets and holy days. The weak in faith were the immature believers who felt obligated to obey legalistic rules concerning what they ate and concerning the way they worshipped. 
In the Roman assembly, the weak Christians were those who clung to the law but did not fully enjoy the freedom that they had. The weak Christians were judging and condemning the strong Christians and the strong Christians were despising the weak Christians because of what they were doing. No wonder disputed matters got in the way of true acceptance of one another and destroyed their relationships. In every church today, even here today, there are still those who are weak in the faith and there are those who are strong. And yes, still, we have disputed do's and don'ts that can cause havoc within a church, which in turn doesn't bring glory to God. No fight in a church brings glory to God. What can we learn from these Christians of old? It's not our responsibility to decide the requirements of Christian fellowship in a church. Only the Lord can do this. To set up man-made restrictions on the basis of personal conviction is to go beyond the word of God. We must not argue over these matters, nor must we judge or despise one another. Many people have the idea that Christians who follow such strict rules or who do this or who do that are more mature, but it's not necessarily the case. The weak must not condemn the strong and call them unspiritual. The strong must not, must not despise the weak and call them immature. Paul's message is this. Believers are to accept one another without condemnation of your personal convictions. He says that in his verse 1. He says you are to accept one another with open arms, open hearts, ready to share life together. How? The same way God did it for you. I think the best translation of this comes from St. Augustine. He puts it this way. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. But again... Remembers Paul's greatest point is this. Receive one another just as Christ has received you. God has received both the weak and the strong, therefore they should receive one another the same way. We can accept others because God has accepted us. We don't look down on others because God doesn't look down on us. That is Paul's opening message. Now for verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands and he falls. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. My point for this one is this. God sustains his own. Paul here is addressing the problem of how the strong Christians were judging the weak because of what they're doing. But he not only addresses it, he condemns them for doing it. Why does he condemn them? What's the biggest problem with them doing this? When Christians start to judge others, they're trying to take the place of God in the life of that Christian. God is the master, he says. The Christian is the servant. It is wrong for anyone to interfere with that relationship. The word servant in this passage means one busy working for the Lord. I know one commentary said this, if Christians lived as true servants to the Lord, they would not have time or inclination to judge and condemn other Christians. Because they would be so busy serving the Lord, as this verse says, they would have more important things to do than investigating the life of other believers. I'm not sure if this is a true story or not. Pastors can tell these stories and sometimes are they analogy or are they truth? But I remember I was sitting in, in college one day and we were covering this verse. And our lecturer, who was a pastor, had been a pastor for 40 years. 
He said, I found a unique way how I deal with this problem, how I deal with this topic. And he said the pastor had an effective way. What he did is he kept a special book in his office and he labelled the book Complaints of Members Against One Another. And he said, when, when a member of my church comes to me and they tell me about some fault of a fellow professional, um, I don't know how to say that word, he would say, well, that's great. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. Here's my complaint book. I'll write it down, what you've just said to me, and you, can you just sign your name to it? So that way, when I go to the person, I'll take up the matter with him. When the book was open, he said, Nine out of ten times, the complainer would say, oh, no, I couldn't sign it. The pastor told the class in 40 years, the book was opened many times, but never was one entry made. Game could be made, I don't know. I like how the message puts this verse. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned... God can handle that without your help. I'm sure none of us would go to a wedding as a guest and be rude enough to go up to another guest at that wedding and criticise that person, to say to that person, look, you really shouldn't be here because you're not dressed right. You haven't followed the dress code, so you really need to get out. Or you go up to that person and say, look, you've had a bit too much to drink, and we're not we're only halfway through the night, you're disturbing the night, you need to go. None of you would probably do that at a wedding as a guest. Why not? Because you don't have the right. The only one that can ask a guest to leave a wedding is the host, the one that sent out the invitations, the one who is in charge of the party. No Christian has the right to play God in another Christian's life. We can pray for them, we can advise them, and we can even warn them, but we cannot take the place of God. Those other Christians who are at our Sunday worship services, those other Christians in our town, those other Christians in our lives, those Christians are his servants, not ours. Because all of us are guests at his table. So Paul says, accept one another as God has accepted you. When you see other Christians doing things, don't argue with them. Know that God sustains them. He is the one who can make them stand. The encouraging thing for us in this is this. Have you ever been looked down on or told that what you're doing is wrong? Then grab this truth. Our success in the Christian life does not depend on the opinions or attitudes of other Christians. God is our judge. That's Paul's message in verse 4. God is the one who sustains his own and he is able to take care of them, to teach them, to guide them, and to make them stand. Now we get to verses 5 to 9, which I guess, you know, are the meat of the passage, where Paul addresses another principle. He's told them, accept one another, just as God accepts you, because know that God is the one who sustains your brothers and sisters, not you. And now his message is this. One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats it to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. 
And he who abstains does so for the Lord because he gives thanks to God. For none of us live to himself alone and none of us die to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be the Lord of both the dead and the living. As I just said, this is the meat of the passage. This is the whole thing of his argument. He has a great point here. Let me put his point to you, what I believe he says in these, in four words. Jesus Christ is Lord. If I was to sum up these verses, I would say this. In everything we do or in everything we say, we need to make sure that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. What I find interesting is nowhere in this passage does he condemn anyone for doing anything about what they think they're doing other than the judging. He doesn't condemn anyone for eating certain foods or keeping certain days holy. Instead, he asks the question, what is it that makes this food or holy day holy? The answer is the fact that they're doing it for the Lord. Whatever they are doing, he says, they are relating it to the Lord. The person who treats special day as holy, they are doing so unto the Lord. The person who treats every day as sacred does so unto the Lord. The Christian who eats meat and gives thank for it does so unto the Lord. And he says, those that believe you shouldn't eat meat do so unto the Lord. In verse 15, Paul writes, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This fully convinced means to be fully persuaded, to be 100% assured in your own mind what God had said to them in regards to what they are doing. It carries the notion of let every man see to it that he is really doing what he is doing for the sake of the Lord. Whatever you are doing, is it because Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? I do believe God will challenge us on different things and some will be more passionate about things than others. I do believe that God can come in and ask us to do certain things and keep certain things that he won't do to other Christians. I had a friend in Adelaide, and he used to go around and speaking at churches. He believed that Christians should only listen to Christian music. He had a soapbox about it, and you'd go to churches, and I can tell you, he was very good. He could biblically proclaim it to you. But he also knew that was his baby. God had really challenged him on that for a reason. He couldn't go and say, this is gospel truth, that Christians should only listen to Christian music. As much as God does lay things on our hearts, like Craig, Spurgeon and Parker, he may not lay them on everyone else. We have no right to judge others on such issues, for they are matters of the conscience to be settled between the individual and God. And what I find interesting is this. I don't know if you find this. I have things in my life that I think are untouchable. Some of these grades matters you shouldn't be doing. Do you know I find God often brings people in my life that has the complete opposite conviction? What is important is we make the Lord the Lord. An interesting illustration of this truth is found in John 
chapter 21. You know it. Jesus has restored Peter to his place of an apostle and once again told him to follow me. Peter began to follow Jesus, but then he heard someone walking behind him, and it was John. And then Peter asked Jesus, hey, what about him? Jesus says, what is that to you? I've asked you to follow me. You worry about that. Or in other words, Peter, make sure you make me Lord of your life every day. Don't worry about the man behind you. Let me worry about John. Whenever I hear believers condemning other Christians because of something they disagree with, something that is not essential or forbidden, I feel like saying, what is that to you? You worry about your life. Let the person behind you, let God deal with that. Paul emphasised the believer's union with Christ. Whether we live, therefore we live. Whether we die, we are the Lord's. Our first responsibility is to the Lord. That is his whole message. Again, I, I like the message. Um, it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase, I know. But I like how he puts it. This is what Eugene says about this verse. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for the prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables for the glory of God and give thanks for the broccoli. Has God laid something on your heart that may be classed as a disputable matter? then be convinced of it. Serve the Lord in it. Don't let others condemn you for it. The controlling motive in all Christian conduct should be love, should be acceptance, should be an openness, a love for God, a love for obeying him, and a love for his people. And now the final two verses. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For he we will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. My final point for this is from these last two verses. Know this, Jesus Christ is the judge. The part to this section, Paul asked the weak Christians, who are you to judge your brother? And then he asked the strong Christians, who are you to despise your brother? Both strong and weak must stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They will be judged by the Lord. They are not meant to be judged by each other. Can I just say on a side note, the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with our sins. Never think that whenever the Bible talks about judgment, it is to do with our sins because Christ has paid the price for them and they are not held against us anymore. The judgment seats from a biblical perspective is the place where Christians' works will be judged. How much was Jesus Lord of our life? What did we do for him? That's what happens at the judgment seat. How does the Christian prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? By making Jesus Lord of his life and faithfully obeying him. Paul explained that they did not have to give an account to anyone else but themselves because Jesus Christ is the judge. So they were to make sure their account was a good one. He was stressing the principle of Jesus Christ's lordship in their life. Make Jesus Christ lord of your life and let him be the lord of, in the lives of the other Christians as well. That was his message. So that's it. 
Where does grace and law work out in the church? Well, we can know this. We are all really different from each other. We are. Some are stronger, some are weaker. Some have been Christians for a long time, some a short time. We all wear different things. We all eat different things. We all spend our time in different ways. We all bring God different kinds of gifts and different kinds of sacrifices. Just remember, if you have entrusted your life to Christ, then you are alive. Even if that trust and life may come at looking different things from different people, that's okay. That's okay. Knowing that we belong to God and he will sustain us, make him Lord of your life and accepting each other as God accepts us is what really counts. Or in other words, whatever God has laid upon your heart to do, be convinced of it. But definitely don't let it come between your relationships with each other because that's what destroys it. Next week, I'm going to continue and I'm going to look at verses 13 to 23, where again, he gives us another tool on handle disputable matters. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that um, Christianity is a relationship and we all relate differently. Father, you, you, you call us from different backgrounds. You call us from different cultures. You call us. And Lord, you ask us to be born again in you and you. I thank you for the people you call. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that you, you bring together and you mould together as church families. And Lord, I thank you for, yeah, for people who are out there proclaiming the gospel. Lord, I pray that um, for churches that, um, that are fighting at the moment, I know of some that are really fighting over disputable matters. And Lord, it kills relationships. And I think that's Paul's point. That's your point. The most important thing is to love you, make you Lord of our life, and to love each other. And Father, I pray that um, if I said anything today that's not of you, that you'll work in that. Remind it. In Jesus' name, amen.